0: Good afternoon, good morning, good night, good whatever time of day you're listening to this. Uh, welcome back to the Cut Through Nutrition Podcast. Um, you are joined by myself, Dr. Joshua Walrich, and my co-host, who's not going to say his name. Oh, I thought you were going to say Well, it. I mean, you know, my co-host. Alan you were on a roll. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, we we still don't have an intro. I think that's actually, I think I'm okay with that. Yeah, lis- listening back, I kind of like the fact that we just launch into it. No frills. <laughs> no intro we'll create, we'll like create some sort of theme tune maybe at some point but it will no. probably be really like no. subversive let's, it probably won't be let <laughs> um, so in the last what intro and three episodes mm. um, it has been brought to our attention and also something that we were planning on talking about anyway that it can all seem a little negative mm-hmm. some of the stuff that we've been talking about um, and in one way that has been relatively deliberate Uh, we've been of the opinion that if we're going to talk about some of these issues in a bit more depth and therefore um, uh, be able to come to some conclusions as to how we express this kind of information, we need to know where the pitfalls and where the problems are to start with. Mm -hmm. So although it might seem a little negative, I think all of this stuff that we've been talking about or I hope all this stuff we've been talking about is really important to have context on before we move forward into how do we give out information to people. Hmm. Um, if we're unaware of the context and the concerns, then it's very easy to fall into those kind of traps uh, when giving out information. Yeah, But we'd like today to be slightly more positive, mm-hmm. if we can. And perhaps uh, instead of it feeling like nutrition is so complicated there are so many issues uh there can't be any real good advice that can be given out clearly we know nothing about nutrition where do we even start Mm. we might as well just eat cornflakes all day every day um i don't know why i picked cornflakes there maybe it was the crunchy nut reference you yeah it was Mm. the seal reference you did a couple of episodes ago. um so we're going to talk a little bit today about what we do know in nutrition or i'm going to ask you a bit about what we do know in nutrition and perhaps have a bit more of a, a positive episode this time yeah, I think so because we can very much get lulled
1: into this idea with the debate, um, and mo- most people are seeing this debate online, right? They're not seeing it in, um, you know, the context that scientific debate certainly would would go back and forth, which is through academic journals and this kind of thing. So mm. most people's confusion is stemming from a conversation um, that's often somewhat disconnected from the actual research and the evidence base. And that can be a little frustrating because people can portray nutrition as a field that it is relatively new still, but they can portray it as something that gives us no reliable answers. That's not true. Mm. And from multiple lines of inquiry, we can now in 2019 form some pretty broad brush overall conclusions about health promoting diet patterns uh, and I say patterns there uh, pluralistically because that's the case. Um, there is no one true universal human diet. And we can kind of within each um, element of those uh, characteristics of, of a healthful diet pattern um, tease out some nuances. And so we we do know a lot in nutrition. We certainly know enough for action. The barriers that prevent that information being put out into practice on the wider scale really have nothing to do with the field in terms of what's on paper um, and more to do with barriers that I think we'll discuss more in future episodes. I think to start with, though, it is helpful to talk about a bit of historical context for um, when most people think of nutrition, they will think of nutrients, or if they think of nutrition advice, they'll think in terms of nutrients. They'll think, oh, Sugar or fiber or saturated fat, for example. Mm. And it's not that those characteristics aren't relevant, but the focus um, of the field in certainly the last 10 years has very much been moving away from just looking at those constituents in isolation and thinking about them in the context of the total diet pattern that they are provided in. And what's the relationship of that characteristic to other dietary variables in that diet pattern? The reason we had the very nutrient-focused um, uh, kind of reductionism in nutrition, when the formal science started evolving, um, the first vitamin wasn't discovered really until 1913. Um, we knew that there were things in food that were seemed to have a, a positive impact on health. We didn't know what the constituents were. And so the real kind of early golden age of nutrition science through the kind of 1920s and early 30s was very much Uh, oriented around identifying what these constituents were, um, isolating the um, individual macronutrients, finding out what food sources they were provided from. And the reason this was so important was because public health issues at the day very much related to deficiency states. Mm. So in areas where there will be low sunlight exposure, rickets was quite common, Um, you know, malformation of of the bones in in young people. Kids, we had epidemics of goiter throughout Europe, which is a result of an iodine deficiency. Or can um, be. Or can be. Um, And in the United States as well. We had incidences of conditions like beriberi in the Far East. Um, Pellagra was kind of um, relatively widespread. And all of these conditions. Uh, had a very particular nutrient deficiency Mm. that was causative of these conditions. But the thing about these conditions was they have very short latency periods. So if you don't consume fruits and vegetables at all, you will develop scurvy symptoms relatively quickly speaking, as in within a matter of weeks, for example. And so... When you provide that nutrient to an individual with a deficiency state, they recover quite quickly. So Mm. symptoms onset quickly, people recover rapidly, so they have short latency periods. This, this kind of reductionism served nutrition well in its infancy as a science
0: mm. and served public health well. These conditions were all eradicated. So at that point, you could almost say that the food is medicine rhetoric was helpful. <laughs> right, it actually yeah, could yeah. have been. Yeah, it at that point, It wasn't the, the, the concerns and the problems that we highlighted in today in the yeah. first episode about it weren't there. Um, right. And so it, the rhetoric had its purpose. It had that its point. purpose and, and
1: really um, was beneficial for public health. Mm. Um, so vitamin D was fortified in milk from 1933 onwards. Um, pellagra was pretty much eradicated by fortifying flowers with vitamin B3. Vitamin B1 is fortified through a range of foods. Um, and iodine was fortified in salts. Um, as in table salt, sprinkling mm-hmm. salt. And so these interventions were actually really successful. Um, when we fast forward to now, the conditions that we are faced with, chronic lifestyle conditions, the word chronic being important, they, they develop over the long term. If someone has a heart attack at 60, mm. it hasn't come out of the blue. The, the the actual progression and the natural history of the disease yeah. has been coming sometimes you know, if you look at atherosclerosis, since, since they were in their 20s. Mm-hmm. So these are long latency conditions, and the influence of diet on these conditions is is going to be a long-term influence over the course of the lifespan. So having having realized this, the focus is now very much on, on, on total diet patterns. And part of the reason for that is, it doesn't really make much sense to focus on something in isolation, even if there is enough evidence to say, well, something in isolation may be having an effect. You know, low fiber intake, for example. Um, We know that, yes, that's an isolated characteristic,
0: but we want to focus on the foods that provide fiber in the diet, Mm, increasing mm. them. Which is going to be more helpful, advising the foods or advising you go and take fiber capsules? Exactly,
1: yeah. Uh, Increase your fiber means very little to most people at the population level. Mm. And also, it's the idea that, nutrition by nature is defined by substitution effects. So if you reduce something in the diet, it's going to be replaced with something else. And so a lot of the key health determinants are influenced by what you replace something with in the diet. Um, And they're important considerations. So Here we are in 2019. It's not that the nutrient focus is redundant. It's not because we still need to understand mechanisms. We still need to understand how something does act. But we also understand now that it's not enough to stop there, that we then step back to the big picture of where does this nutrient fit into a total diet pattern and do we have evidence from diet patterns consuming this nutrient is there any evidence from those populations of benefit or harm and what is the relationship of that particular nutrient for example with other with the balance of other nutrients in the diet um and investigating at that kind of food-based diet pattern level a bit more mm. so when we when we do add this body of research up though that we have been evolving, you know, for for nearly a hundred years. Um, I wouldn't say that a lot of the early work contributes to now but certainly from the 1950s and 60s onwards we we have an evidence base there that is more reliable than people give it credit for and at the broadest levels we can debate the nuances but at the broadest levels we kind of know what characteristics of of healthful diet patterns are Mm. um and again i I emphasize patterns because there are many ways to skin a cat in this respect it's just
0: (laughs) the characteristics are often quite similar So I guess, therefore, my question could be, as a bit of a uh, too-long-didn't-read, or uh, as often written on the internet, TLDR, TLDR. um, what would you uh, say, for example? Because I know, uh, certainly, in my job, I have very limited time with with patients. Mm -hmm. I don't have hours to go through different, nutrients and different mm-hmm. foods and different ways that they could improve their diet. And it's also not my, not my area of expertise to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. But there are often situations where people will ask me, but well, I, I want to improve my diet. What, what should I do? Mm-hmm. And I know it's not just myself. I mean, uh, my partner's a physiotherapist and I know that she mm-hmm. often gets people asking her too. Yeah. Um, so anyone in a healthcare professional capacity, um, will often get asked these kind of things by members of the public. Um, mm-hmm. so what would, as a TLDR, a kind of, uh, a good kind of answer, and we can go into a little bit more depth yeah. in this episode as well, broad but what answer. would, yeah, what would the broad answer be to, to, uh, you know, what, what can you suggest? I want to improve my diet. What, what's right. important to that question? So the, to that so question? the
1: caveat, preamble to answering this question is we do accept that what i'm about to say in terms of advice or 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 the general what we know has barriers to doing it so just we're putting them aside for the purposes of this discussion
0: and we're just talking about those barriers you know ethics is a barrier people's previous kind of uh, chronic yeah. disease state is a barrier. Yeah, they're, people they're within home factors, yeah, and socioeconomic status, exactly. all this stuff. So we are we and are to, to clarify that, we, we did say at the end of the last episode that we would be talking about socioeconomics. Yeah, in this we're one. doing a whole episode on um, So we are going to yeah. do it, but not this episode. We're going to do it in the next episode, but it will yeah, make we th- sense. We thought the order, order
1: would be better if we talked about yeah. the kind of broad diet stuff first. And then how? And then discussed how some of these socioeconomic and hmm. environmental barriers prevent it from from being implemented because you know it can sound easy in conception we we fully accept that it is not but let's with that caveat go back to the question so i think in terms of incontrovertible facts the one thing that i think everybody in nutrition would agree with is eating plenty of vegetables fruit and within that a spectrum of stuff that has different colors is a cornerstone of a healthful diet pattern the reasons may not just be as simple as the micronutrients in those foods but may extend to um, bioactive food components so these are constituents of the food that are biologically active but they're not nutrients we don't actually technically need them for survival mm. but they actually do have activity in the body so, as an example of that uh, com- group of compounds that have got a lot of interest, are called flavonoids, and they would be found in things with a very dark pigment skin, so kind of purpley, dark reddish things. So, there's a there's a growing body of research that suggests that actually those compounds and a, and a broad mix of those compounds are actually one researcher terms them lifespan essential. So, we don't need them for for survival, as I said, but in terms of the beneficial effects that they have, they may be actually really important for our overall health across the lifespan. Mm. Um, so, so I, I consider vegetable and fruit kind of consumption uh, like an incontrovertible fact of nutrition. Mm. Like there, there is just nothing that could suggest that there is a um, you know a lack of
0: <laughs> yeah, evidence yeah. for that. Am I, and am I right in thinking that the the public health messaging in the UK of of five a day is actually under just a compromise um, yeah that right. actually the the evidence would suggest that something ten. like eight or yeah ten. or eight ten to, is, eight, eight is ten. actually the ideal number in terms but of no one's going to hit that
1: yeah in terms of maximal um reduction in risk one of the things we look at when we look at at nutrition exposures, part of the reason why a lot of the research appears quote-unquote weak in terms of the association with an outcome is because they often don't look at Uh, a spectrum of of units of exposure so to speak in terms of intake so one serving two servings yeah but as you go up servings daily servings of vegetable and fruit intake you get progressively greater risk reductions relative risk reductions for Mm. for all chronic diseases however public health is not in the business of just mandating like strict this is what the evidence says because it has to be mindful. Public health messaging has to be mindful of accessibility of the message and mm. whether people can and cannot engage with it. And that's really where five a day was settled on. There's no, there's no and people say, Oh, five a day is an evidence-based. No. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with it not. <laughs> it's 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 a compromise to try and make an accessible
0: target for people. I mean, ten thousand steps isn't evidence-based. I think right. the evidence at the moment is more like four thousand or six <laughs> thousand oh, yeah apparently filled. it's a lot lower oh but uh so they're anyway. the other way with that yeah well, exactly so that, that's reassuring, that's that,
1: that's one one characteristic um that i think is relatively incontrovertible in terms of the really now dogmatic and, and quite ridiculous conversations about dietary fat mm. even though people in the field will debate the extent to which we were or were not right about saturated fat and heart disease Mm. the one thing that i think is relatively uniformly accepted is that even if we're wrong on that i personally don't believe we are but i'll go into that in more detail in in future episodes but even if we are it's Quite clear that unsaturated fats are just better for you yeah, <laughs> so yeah, it, yeah. so in the concept of relativity and, and and dealing with nutrition as a matter of probabilities, you know even if, we're pr- if even if there's a probability that saturated fats weren 't as bad for you it 's very clear from the research yeah. that unsaturated fats from marine and from plant sources so we 're talking fish we 're talking you know plant fats, nuts, seeds, oils, and that kind of thing. And again, that's supported by diet pattern research when we look at the Mediterranean diet is probably the reference UK. Um, in the UK, there's the, the, the med diet's the reference healthy diet. Mm. But we see it in the Japanese population as well. Even though total fat content isn't as high in the traditional Japanese diet, the composition of fats is The same, it's primarily unsaturated
0: fats mm. uh, from uh, certainly a lot of, of marine sources. And we will go, we, we have, we will do a few, a kind of a, a few deep dive episodes yeah, on fat yeah, in general. Yeah. But am I right in thinking, um, from what I've read so far, that uh, there the reason why there's a bit of a controversy on some of the saturated fat stuff is because there was some there's been some evidence to show that if you replace saturated fats with with carbohydrates then it doesn't have much of an impact right. but if you replace saturated fats with unsaturated fats then you improve health so there was some yes so it's... so part of the suggestion there was
1: well, well the first thing is what people tend to open that with is cardiovascular disease remains the leading cause of mortality therefore we must have been wrong about saturated fat Cardiovascular disease rates have come down by 52%. Mm-hmm. It's an enormous reduction. In 1962, in the UK, there were 166,000 deaths from coronary heart disease. There are something around 80. So it's not that 80 is an insignificant number, and yes, it remains the leading cause of mortality, but there has been a massive reduction in total incidence. And I think we need to remember that in this conversation. And yes, reductions in smoking have been an important part of that and other lifestyle variables, but certainly the reduction in, in saturated fat has contributed to that. The other nuance there is that where that came from was, oh, well, people have lowered saturated fat, it's around 12%, for example, in the UK, on average, 12.7. Um, they'll say, well, because cardiovascular disease is still the leading cause of mortality, we're eating more carbohydrate and sugar. There- therefore, we must have been wrong, and-, and it was always carbohydrate and sugar. Well, first off, the effects of substituting saturated fat for carbohydrate appear neutral, or no- or n- there's no risk reduction, mm in analyses that do not stratify carbohydrate intake by carbohydrate quality. Okay. So when you actually, and th- there's a couple of papers, any papers that find a neutral effect of or a no benefit to substituting saturated fat with carbohydrate typically haven't separately analysed whether the carbohydrates were
0: from whole grain, unrefined sources, or refined grain sources. Yeah, so when, my mind automatically goes to there, perhaps the reduction in saturated fat actually did benefit but they were eating a lot of kind of non-whole grain sources of carbohydrates which was kind of balance well, in, out the, in the in the modern exactly in the in the modern diet pattern in the quote
1: western diet pattern mm. um it's predominantly refined sources of carbohydrates so you do not get a risk reduction necessarily if it's refined carbohydrates that have been substituted people have interpreted that to mean that carbohydrates must be worse refined carbohydrates i I think the answer is palpably obvious a diet high in one either or both is problematic Mm -hmm. um and it's it's not a case of one being worse than the other it's context dependent if you go back to the 1920s or sorry the 1960s and 50s when saturated fat formed 20 percent of the uk diet 23 percent of the finnish diet sugar wasn't particularly high in the diet heart disease rates you know were, were, were where they were that is one contributing factor. The most interesting isolated case study that that controls for in in a roundabout way these other variables comes from the Finnish public health intervention that they launched in 1972 to they had the highest rates of heart disease mortality in the world. They targeted four risk factors across the population saturated fat, uh, blood pressure, smoking and BMI. And over the 35 year period that they that they ran this public health intervention. BMI didn't change in the population, it increased. Smoking didn't change in the population, which is a nice comparative to the UK where it did. Mm. And blood pressure had a slight reduction, but the primary, they reduced cardiovascular mortality by 80%. And of the four risk factors that they targeted, 80% of that reduction came from reduced blood cholesterol levels across the population. So so the Finnish case study lends a lot of weight as a long-term example of... When those other factors like smoking and weight and, and and stuff like that are taken out of the picture. So you're you're right about the that kind of, I suppose, controversy over saturated fat being replaced by carbohydrate. But when we replace it with whole grain, high fiber, unrefined sources, we get a reduction in risk. Okay. Now, interestingly, the reduction in risk, even from carbohydrate unrefined whole grain carbohydrates is not as substantial as the effect of substituting saturated fat with unsaturated fat sources and and that's been so this is where i think public health probably public health still says swap your saturated fat with carbohydrates right and obviously they mean whole grain but that's not the most efficacious thing that people could do with their diet the most Mm -hmm. efficacious thing is to and the reason that apparently what i have been told from friends that I speak with um, in in public health, the reason that they're scared to make that suggestion is because there still is this dogma within public health that dietary fat drives fat, (laughs) you know, weight. Hmm. So it's a weight-centric perspective they're taking on that evidence. Oh, we can't tell people to... Eat, let it swap fat and eat more of another type of fat because, but I, I just think with where we're at now, that's probably being a bit short-sighted because <laughs> it's not a, like we... So, so
0: am I right? So from what you've said so far, more fruit and veg, mm-hmm. um, more variety yeah, and more unsaturated fat yeah. and less saturated fat in general? Would that well, be a generalised Well, if you're eating good? more
1: unsaturated fat,
0: you would assume by implication would, yeah. someone is not going to
1: be, if you're opting for oily fish versus steak, if you're opting for olive oil or rapeseed oil versus butter, you're you're going to naturally have that right. substitution effect. Uh, but yes, it would mean that you don't go putting butter in your coffee you know there's no need no isolated food that is high in saturated fat like a steak or some nice lamb is going to be problematic it's just you don't base your diet around yeah, meat but and frequency butter of, of it's a intake, frequency and it's yeah. a total intake thing yeah. so and, and what's interesting within the unsaturated fat, which we, again, we'll, we'll deep dive into in more detail, is that there's even a hierarchy within that. So polyunsaturated fats, which are the types of fat found in fish and in certain plant nuts and oils, mm. have the greatest beneficial effect when they replace saturated fats in the diet, particularly for reducing heart disease. Mono unsaturated fats were actually neutral for years.
0: People couldn't f- really figure out why, but that was an effect of focusing Coming too much from on where. On the nutrient. No, that as in coming from where the monounsaturated fat's coming from. So that's, that was the
1: key question. So ah. when people were doing analyses, they were finding, oh, monounsaturated fats might even increase your risk. But they weren't looking at the food sources. Ah, okay. Monounsaturated fats are as prevalent in animal foods as they are in plant foods. Ah. So when we think monounsaturated fats in nutrition, we're typically thinking Mediterranean diet, olive oil, almonds. They're all mm. monounsaturated fats. But actually, if you were to have, you know, lard, for example, people would assume in their head is pure saturated fat. It's 52% saturated fat, 48% monounsaturated So you mm. get monounsaturated fats from animal sources. And so what a lot of these analyses were reflecting were high animal fat diets, both saturated and, and mono. Um, uh, a really, really nice analysis in 2018 from Frank Hu and the, the Harvard crew um, basically stratified monounsaturated fat intake by source. And again, substitute with plant-based monounsaturated fats, we get the reduction. Substitute with animal, no, 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 but you know, no, no risk reduction. So with monounsaturated fats, we're still looking at the plant sources. Mm. So really there's a hierarchy and it favors polyunsaturated fats followed by monounsaturated fats, followed by complex whole grain carbohydrate, uh, with no benefit
0: to substituting with obviously refined carbohydrate sources. So would it be right to the, for the general advice to be plant based sources of unsaturated fat plus fish? fish? Yeah. Okay. That's it. Fine. Nice synopsis. Um, so I guess that, therefore, because otherwise this isn't going to be a TLDR. Yeah yeah, be a yeah, 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 um, It's hard to TLDR. I know, I know. Well, this is still is going to yeah. be a TLDR compared to the, what, we have three episodes teed up on cardiovascular disease right. and diet. Right, right, so, yeah. yeah. Um, and they'll probably be an hour and a half each. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I guess that leads on to, uh, that could lead on quite nicely to protein things. We're mm-hmm. just talking, We just touched on animal sources. Mm-hmm. Um, so what would be the kind of overall advice in regards to protein and also yeah. kind of animal sources of Versus, meat right <laughs> i don't think necessarily animal products comes into that although no. i get it because you know m- yeah but anyway animal yeah, source of meat pro- let's go protein, with protein general pro- protein has 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 been a funny one because you'll lose your
1: gains if you for yeah for, for for years protein was kind of um, one of the scare nutrients and and people hearing this might in 2019 find that hard to believe because everyone's you know all yeah, about the protein some, and the gains not something i've come across but what? if you fast forward or fast back like you know even 15 years there was still mm. this idea that high protein diets damaged your kidneys ah, yes, um, yes. Um, which oh, was based on that. <laughs> quite uh, poor research it was a false positive basically um from research in in the 1980s um looking at urinary metabolites that basically suggested oh there was an increase increase in glomerular filtration rate and it was just like that's not a sign of i know we're not
0: talking about people with specific conditions but there is still but to touch on that very briefly there is still a, a bit of a Hesitation, I know, definitely from within the hospital in regards to yeah, people with chronic kidney disease. You don't have high protein
1: diets. Is there yeah? Yeah, So is that still something? The clinical nutrition intervention for CKD is is low protein. Yeah, so so we're not talking about people with chronic kidney disease, by the way. And then I think the other the other the pendulum swings in nutrition tend to be extreme. And the other part of the problem now, the obverse of the coin is that because protein got such a renaissance through the kind of bro and strength and conditioning uh realm that now people are almost dismissive of it you know and it's uh, so it's funny how these conversations get saturated right um there is a lot of evidence to benefit to dietary protein across a range of of different health outcomes um Mm. it's the most satiating macronutrient we have and we have direct mechanistic evidence for why that is tends to act on gut hormones and peptides that are involved in signaling fullness, basically. And, yeah. you're, and they communicate directly to brain areas that um, dampen what's known as the hedonic response to, to food, food cues. So protein's quite filling. Um, in terms of specific populations as well, I think there's a growing consensus that higher dietary protein intake in the elderly is quite beneficial because as we age, our skeletal, muscle tissue can become resistance to anabolic mm-hmm, signaling and mm-hmm. um, so they call it age-related sarcopenia where people can start to lose muscle mass and that contributes to frailty and actually yeah. if you look at issues in the elderly in terms of morbidity they often come with loss of independence so i think there's a quite a focus now in in age specific kind of population group nutrition for higher dietary protein intake in that population to mm-hmm. help preserve mm-hmm. lean muscle mass so they can
0: preserve mobility and, 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 and kind of, you know, more yeah. thriving physical activity. Well, we know that, we know that overall strength as you age is, is massively associated to improve quality of life right. and reduce morbidity and mortality. Yeah. So yeah, if, if protein is going to be related to that in terms of yeah. muscle, helping muscle mass. people, you, you need, basically kind of a higher threshold
1: to try and help overcome that kind of resistance exactly, signaling. Yeah. So protein is a beneficial nutrient. Um, we don't need crazy amounts of it that maybe that's where the kind of the, the, the bro-centric approach to it came. However, mm-hmm. the RDA of 0.8 grams per kilogram often gets touted to be well this is sufficient for the most people for the majority of the population it probably is but that doesn't mean that there are not benefits to perhaps a slightly higher intake than that in terms of what you were saying in food sources one of this is one of the really uh, nice examples of why it's important to step back from nutrient focus and look at foods contributing in diet patterns so the plant versus animal protein thing came uh, from a lot of observations that associated a benefit to to plant proteins. But if we think about plant proteins for a second, they don't exist in isolation. If you're consuming a lot of plant proteins in food-based terms, that means you're consuming a lot of legumes, chickpeas, lentils, this kind of thing. You're consuming a lot of nuts. You're consuming foods that are high in fiber. They're high in these um, they're high in unsaturated fats. Mm. They're high in a lot of beneficial compounds. So, the food replacement effect
0: again—it's that replacement effect, it's that that replacement effect
1: yeah. and it's the effect of these—the actual foods themselves. So, being a little reductionist and thinking plant protein without actually contextualizing the foods that provide plant protein, someone that's eating a lot of plant protein by default is probably consuming quite an overall healthful diet pattern. Mm. They have to be if they're mm. consuming a lot of this. Whereas a lot of the associations with high animal protein intake comes in the context of a typical Western diet pattern where it's consumed in the context of refined grains, low dietary fiber intake, possibly also a lot of added sugar um, and potentially higher saturated fat intake as a result. So the actual animal proteins themselves are not uniquely harmful. It's not that cysteine is different in a chickpea to a chicken breast. Um, and ultimately, where we are now in terms of factoring in environmental considerations and stuff like that, I think really um, a diet that probably has a mix. Of, and this assumes someone's ethical yeah. and moral yeah. position involves uh, you know, consuming animal produce, for example. So if that applies to people, then a mix of animal and plant sources of protein is going to be beneficial. But it's less to do with the fact that the protein comes from a plant versus an animal and
0: more to do with the actual food matrix that's providing it. Yeah. So if, for example, you're doing one day a week meat free... Mm-hmm irrelevant almost as to whether or not the meat is beneficial to you it's more the other parts of your diet that you're going to end up eating during that day yeah there was a really nice study a few years ago that actually looked at this issue as it related more
1: so to kind of weight loss metabolic syndrome but it looked at the composition of protein in the diet Uh, a higher total protein diet like 27 percent energy from protein and one with 18 percent. but one diet had two-thirds animal and one-third plant protein and the other had the opposite, it had two-thirds plant and one-third animal protein. And there was no difference between the two in terms of any of the outcomes assessed. Um, so I think that the message isn't that, you know, like animal protein, as we tend to talk about it, um, it, often has to be contextualized against the background diet that that high levels of animal protein intake are going to be consumed yeah. in. And that's often, as I said, Western diet patterns that have certain other characteristics that, that may be the, and, and for me, the characteristic that would probably be most implicated would be low dietary fiber. There was a, a really nice paper in 2009, Brinkworth was the lead author, but it looked at, um, basically the effects of protein, uh, higher protein diets on gut Um, So all of the outcomes were like the gut microbiome, basically, Uh, composition of bacteria, protein degradation byproducts and this kind of thing. Um, So both diets had 170, 180 grams of protein a day. That's a decent Mm. whack of protein. Mm. But one diet with 11 grams of fiber, which is the national average, and the other diet with 30 grams of fiber. Mm. And the negative effects were only observed in the 11 gram of fiber a day diet. So that suggests that actually the impact of, of dietary protein potentially in the gut is modulated by the presence or absence of fiber and that if you're consuming a high fiber diet um that's protective and mm. and, you, and there, there wasn't any of these um protein putrefaction or or any of these kind of what they were, what they were measuring in terms of potential negative outcomes observed on the diet with 30 grams of fiber a day. So the message here is again everything in nutrition is a relationship and context and balance the message for me would be dietary fiber is, yeah. is 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 as important as we
0: think it is well that leads us nicely onto carbs in yeah. general i think things uh, we talked with starting on fiber um die. so we've t- <laughs> we've talked about um fats protein um and uh, so moving on to carbs, what would be mm-hmm. the kind of general state of where we are as you pick up a hysteria, carb- carbohydrate laced <laughs> strawberry the, right there. Yeah. The, the, with all the of general, that sugar. the
1: general state of where we are is utter hysteria. Um, I think I said earlier that the pendulum swings in nutrition are extreme. And I think that's, I think that's quite true for carbohydrates. Um, it's, it's really, it's really funny though, in a way, the level of hysteria that we have around carbohydrates. I mean, there's this idea that there's been this surge of carbohydrate into the diet, and most of that was based off flawed research. Better, more kind of um, you know quantified research has in you know, for example, even with high fructose corn syrup, people said, "Oh, well, it's high fructose corn syrup came into the U.S. diet in the '70s, and and bang, we can just draw a straight line for chronic lifestyle disease." It's like, well, no. Uh, more uh, and there was a a nice analysis done a couple of years ago that actually looked at contributions to increasing caloric intake which has increased kind of to an average of maybe you know depending on your estimates five to seven hundred calories a day in a lot of kind of typical diets um but it found that glucose uh not fructose and dietary fat were actually more contributing to total daily energy so and then within that we have to talk about the percentage of carbohydrate in the diet which again people think you know significantly increased but actually the macronutrient composition certainly of the uk diet has been remarkably stable since the 1950s um dietary fat overall was much higher in the 50s um you know around 40 plus percent energy carbohydrate was often kind of pretty steady at 48 to 52 percent over that period and remains at that so it's not that the quantity of carbohydrate has uh, increased as a percentage of diet the quantity of total energy has increased in all population diets Um, but what's significantly changed has been our, our food supply and our food environment and you know with carbohydrate rather than really get bogged down in all this this kind of you know, um, almost environmental issues driving, you know, changes in the food supply and stuff like that. I think it's just the easiest to state that the difference is whole grain refined versus refined at the, at the simplest level. Whole grain unrefined. Whole grain, sorry. yeah, Yeah. Versus refined. So whole grain versions of carbohydrate and other carbohydrate foods like our kind of legumes and pulses and even certain, you know, um, squashes and colorful what are considered vegetables because of their micronutrient composition. But, you know, our starchy foods as well. Like th- these foods are, you know, there's no evidence that there's a detriment to these foods to human health. There's only evidence of benefit. And it's a benefit that accrues from their fiber content. It's a benefit that accrues from their micronutrient content. Their polyphenol are these, these what I mentioned earlier, these bioactive food components. So equating you know, a chickpea with a can of Coke is ludicrous at the level of logic. But it's quite literally what is happening now, where you're seeing people at conferences present carbohydrate foods equivalent to teaspoons of sugar. And that extends to a banana. It's not a banana anymore. It's five teaspoons of sugar. Well, there was that show on the BBC
0: called "The Truth About Carbs," where they had that got slated though, didn't it? Fortunately, well, 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 where where they had, well, they they just had lots of different food sources, and they had it next to a bowl of of sugar cubes. That's ridiculous. And they were talking about, you know, this is how much sugar you're putting in your body every time you're eating this food and they had it with potatoes. They had it with, um, what do they have? They had it with a muffin and then they had it with something. And I was like, these, these are not the same. And it's just encouraging that fear. Right. That is around at the moment around carbs. And I mean, I know this isn't, this is slightly off point, but I think interestingly the I think a lot of this, this obsession with carbs has come from a heightened awareness of diabetes and and Mm -hmm. its effects on, on on our health and mm-hmm. it's it's come from that that um that inference that just because carbs can be really important when somebody is right has diabetes, dr- yeah it it therefore has led to this myth of sugar is what causes diabetes right. in the first place right. and therefore carbs are bad we should avoid carbs and yeah. you know again we will we again we've got two three episodes teed up mm. planned on diabetes. on diabetes and diet and things anyway so we won't we won't go into the but that let's detail, let's but touch on that sugar point because it is interesting like the idea that sugar is
1: new you know this 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 agent that emerged into the human diet again in the 70s it's farcical like if you if you really want to talk about sugar sweetened beverages, the first sugar sweetened beverage in the UK diet was tea in the seventeen forties when the global kind of uh, trade network was really under British control and was very much focused on sugar, tea, and spices as as commodities. The average family in Britain would have dissolved up to four pounds of sugar in tea alone in a a week. That's a huge amount of sugar. Hmm. Problem is they weren't eating much else. (laughs) So they were still faced with nutrient deficiencies, malnutrition and these other variables. In the Industrial Revolution, the composition of the average worker's diet was 15% energy from sugar. That's higher than it is now at a population level. You know, sugar fueled the Industrial Revolution. But they all it, had diabetes, right? But okay. none of them had diabetes. <laughs> because, again, despite 15% sugar in their diet, they weren't eating much else. Yeah. <laughs> so, again, hunger, malnutrition. And one of the interesting public health um, points that supports that issue is when the First World War started and they were bringing in recruits. And you were talking about 27-year-old men who hadn't attained... Uh, any sort of trajectory height for that age because they didn't have enough nutrition growing up mm. so they were all stunted and so sugar is not any n- new phenomenon in the human diet it has been ubiquitous in consumption since the 1700s when when the imperial
0: trade routes opened up to that extent and it sounds like from what you're saying as well it's not even that it's becoming a higher percentage of our no, intake no. either There isn't a single diet pattern in the world that we
1: associate with really positive health outcomes uh, that is absent carbohydrate. People in the very low-carbohydrate ketogenic camp used to love citing the Inuit as an example Mm -hmm. of people Mm -hmm. who just drink whale blubber and apparently have robust health. But it's more that weird romantic fetishism that comes with you know, this perception of people who live hunter-gatherer lifestyles as robustly healthy. That research that suggested they were robustly healthy from a, a dietary fat perspective um, came from the 1970s from a group of Danish re- Danish researchers who looked at their... Um, omega-3 fatty acid composition they had a lot and they thought oh well maybe this is a really positive characteristic of their diet every single piece of research that has looked at that question since then has found nothing positive and in fact the best study that that kind of really just blew this eskimo myth out of the water was published in 2014 by a group of danish researchers again who compared a Canadian Inuit population with age matched Danish controls. So basically people their same age, in their same age bracket. On average life expectancy was ten years lower in the Inuit. And there was, in based off autopsies, extensive evidence of atherosclerosis and, and arterial plaque accumulation. Mm. So it doesn't really appear that chugging down whale blubber and eating no fruits and vegetables over your lifespan is in any way beneficial. <laughs> the, the diet patterns we tend to model for health, whether that's the Mediterranean or the Japanese diet, blue zones type diet... Um, some of the Pacific Island um, diets and some of the other traditional hunter-gatherer population diets that we still have uh, are, are, all contain bountiful amounts of dietary carbohydrate. Mm. It's the type of carbohydrate, obviously, that matters. But this, this carbohydrate hysteria that's developing now, is um, it's just dangerous because it's guiding people away from a food group for which we have overwhelming benefit of evidence to pop. To, to, to human health it's also guiding them towards a diet pattern that we have zero long-term evidence of of, of yeah. any benefit to yeah. human health and the only thing that we do have are some pr- prospective cohort studies that would really warrant caution in blanketly recommending animal-based low-carbohydrate high-fat diets to people particularly for cardiovascular mortality and there's a biological plausibility to why that would be the case in terms yeah. of the effects of, on LDL cholesterol that uh, are observed with those diet patterns. Yeah. There are physiological mechanisms there
0: that are plausible <laughs> yeah, as to why you might have a heart attack. Probably <laughs> shouldn't be ignored blanketly. Yeah. Cool. So, I, I, I think that's, I mean, I don't know if there's anything else specifically on there apart from perhaps some, I mean, we're getting into more of the, the nutrients rather than food perspective there. If we start talking about micronutrients in terms of, yeah. I mean, what we've touched on so far, fruit and veg, yeah. very important fiber, very important. Mm-hmm. Um, fats, more unsaturated, yeah. less saturated. Mm-hmm. Uh, Protein—it's important. Don't go crazy. Yeah. Plant-based sources of it a may mix. increase the rest yeah. of your yeah. of, of the good stuff in your diet. Yes. So maybe focus a bit more on them rather than mm-hmm. uh, and carbohydrates. Focus on the whole grain, unrefined, unrefined ones if you can. Yeah. Uh, again, all of this seems very much additional rather than than right. than, than removing things from the diet. And I know right. that that's something that's. That, that yeah. as it keeps coming up in regards to we keep telling people to take things away, but mm-hmm. maybe we should be telling people to add instead because I, I, they'll end up taking things away without realizing. I think so. You know,
1: and, and, and one of the funny things about nutrition as a science is as complex as it can be, you know, really when you come back out of all that complexity, you, you end up with a set of recommendations that are largely universal and largely the only people for whom these what we've said is controversial are people for whom those statements of fact don't align with their with their worldview about diet and health. So it's a their, belief their, their, their nutritional identity. Right, their nutritional identities. So they it's a belief system based rejection of those facts, mm. not a not a science-based rejection of those facts. I think most people in nutrition, irrespective of their area or field um, or or population practice, would, would broadly agree with those recommendations. So again, we're not saying there's not nuance in each of them, there is. Yeah, yeah. But at the broad brush level, there is a simplicity to nutrition that is sometimes lost in all of the screaming online. And I think it is nice to bring it back to that simplicity, um, you know, to, to make just the knowledge more accessible. The how do I get there is where things get yeah. maybe complicated in terms of um, certainly at the population level, but actually the information itself is more simple. Um,
0: yeah. So, in one sentence, if you could, if I asked you the question uh, when, when a patient comes to me and wants, and wants a very kind of uh, helpful advice on how they can generally improve their diet, what would be? I know, I know, a I'm making of, well, you do Well, it no, in a one piece sentence, of advice.
1: Well. I mean, at the, the, the most simplest level, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think the simplest thing you could ever say to someone is eat more vegetables and fruit and carry on living your life. <laughs> I really, really stand by that. If, yeah. you know, imagine if everyone did that. Imagine yeah. at a population level, what health effects might occur from from you know every single individual significantly increasing uh, intake of a food group or group of food that's quite diverse provides an array of beneficial compounds. Uh, and has the strongest evidence for reducing all cause
0: mortality across the board. I know, I know, I, but I feel like perhaps that's the utmost TLDR. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 no, that's, I people, thought that's what you were looking for. No, I, well, I kind of do. E- but eat in more vegetables sense. and continue so there, living there's, your So there's your most condensed, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a slightly still one sentence, but slightly expanded. right because right. people look. I mean, let's be honest. We're going to say that to people. Well, and they're going to look at us like I spoke at a conference uh, like,
1: last year. Um, the audience for which was entirely um, medics. And my synopsis w- was what you had just said. I said, you know, there's, it's incontrovertible that fruits and vegetables are beneficial to health. So point one, uh, healthful diet patterns are enriched in saturated fat, uh, in unsaturated <laughs> fat uh, from plant and marine sources. And what we know from nutrition science now is the total fat content Of the diet is less relevant than the composition of fats within it. So, whether you would like a high or low fat, total fat diet is irrelevant and a matter of personal preference. But whether it's high or low, the majority of those fats should be unsaturated fats from marine and plant sources. So, yeah, look, if you want to go 70% fat, that's fine. Just make sure you're drowning yourself in olive oil and not butter. Um, And then from From a carbohydrate perspective, again, there isn't a diet pattern that we know that is beneficial to human health that is absent carbohydrate. They're a broad food group, and when we factor in foods like legumes and other starches, tubers and stuff, and whole grains, oats, these kind of things, it is very difficult to make a case against their inclusion in a diet. Um, And then finally, dietary protein. If you consume animal produce, eggs and dairy, or some meats, it's probably not something that you ever really have to to worry about. So for those people, I tend to say, actually focus a little bit more on increasing plant protein. Um, because again, by doing so, you will increase your intake of all these other compounds as well. For people that are plant-based, I would pay more attention to your dietary protein intake because people that are fully plant-based do have probably more so, their fat composition is typically going to be okay, their fiber intake is going to be okay. It's actually dietary protein that they probably do want to emphasize a little bit more. So do pay attention to, to dietary protein if you're, if you're fully on the plant-based end of the spectrum and
0: don't include any animal produce at all. There you go. There was the slightly longer sentence slightly I was looking longer. for that yeah. wasn't an hour long. That no. was the long- <laughs> right. So to 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 kind of to kind of bring this one to a close, then um, it's not all doom and gloom. No, um, we we do we do we know shit. We do know The field good stuff. isn't
1: useless. <laughs> but, it's produced good answers. We have enough evidence for broadly speaking, what a decent health promoting diet pattern is. And bear in mind that with that diet pattern we'll all still die
0: yeah that's true that was again so, i still think we should change the name of the podcast so everybody still uh, dies yeah. but uh the, the the big but the on point this. there is don't sweat it by the way i'm not being <laughs> morbid i'm just being like don't make this a compulsion but listen the 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 big but on all of this is it's all well and good but if we ignore the impact that socioeconomics and poverty in all, and we're not just talking monetarily poor, it, all aspects of poverty comes into this, then we're falling into the same traps that public health keep falling into. Um, and we're not doing anybody justice. If we tell our... Yeah, just sing- more vegetables. If we, if we tell our single mum of five who, right. are, who has three jobs and lives in a council estate that they just need to eat more fruit and veg and they'll be fine and don't have any any understanding of Barriers. why that would be incredibly difficult for mm-hmm. her and her family to do mm-hmm. then we're not we're we're being ignorant right um so as much as we do know stuff in nutrition yeah. that is good for us and all of this is relatively good information if we refuse to tailor that information to and acknowledge that that information is not doesn't fully fit every subsection of the population, right. especially from a healthcare perspective, because we're going to see all subsets of the population. Mm. Um, then, uh, yeah, then, then we need to check yeah. ourselves, and, and and also that you know when when we are getting to
1: that. So we've we've established like broadly, we we do know more than people will give us credit for, and we do know broadly characteristics of a healthful diet pattern. Fine, parking that. The issues that, that you're Correctly bringing up it's a case of not even becoming about food then, like we're into discourse about you know the political barriers the solutions won't be educating someone a bit more about vegetables and fruit intake uh, mm-hmm. the solutions are you know obviously going to be complex and nothing that we'll ever figure out, but there there that's where almost the nutrition. Um, knowledge just even ceases to be relevant in a way until barriers are addressed and broken yeah. down um, well i think
0: there's some that and i need to find out where exactly i've got this from but i believe you may be able to help me here there's some research to suggest that something like 60 percent of health outcomes are socioeconomically related with only 40% of that being stuff that we are under control of. Right. And only a small section of that 40% yeah. is our diet. The That's rest the, being sleep, smoking, right. exercise. That was the Canadian, um, uh, like I guess national institutes
1: of health or whatever they're mm. called. But, um, yeah, they modeled social determinants of health. Um, 50% was, 50, was it? Okay. economic. Uh, 15 was genetic. And the other was, and so only, <laughs> only something like, you know, 15% or 20% of it was kind of like, uh, you know, really kind of diet related or yeah. directly nutrition related. And I, I think it's it's beyond so important that we start to talk about what those determinants are. It's an exhaustive list, so we kind of focus on the big picture stuff. Um it's also a difficult conversation for us to have because you know we acknowledge that we we have privilege mm. um, and we have had the benefit of of growing up with with access to good healthcare and, and good food and and, and yeah. these kind of variables and so but I also think that you know so someone has to have these conversations like. I agree it's about, it's really important to acknowledge privilege and I do and we do, but I also don't agree that just because you are a certain kind of a phenotype you, you can't speak to these issues, you know, because we can talk about the evidence, we can you know, put it out there through this medium and, and educate and inform people about what that evidence actually is for these issues um, you know, without pretending that we have any of the
0: solutions or actually understand what it's like yeah, to be yeah. in those and uh, facing those barriers. Yeah, 100%. So, we're going to talk uh, next episode um, a bit more about those socioeconomic factors mm-hmm. that influence nutrition, mm-hmm. um, which I think will bring our kind of season one of this to a close nicely. Yeah. In regards to talking about the topics that we need to be aware of, the topics that we need to have consideration for in the back of our heads in every aspect of. Interaction with patients, every aspect of interaction with people. You know, if we're talking about anything to do with nutrition with people, if we ignore the identity issues in nutrition. Mm-hmm. If we ignore the fact that they may be coming in with a food as medicine rhetoric that they've mm-hmm. gained from somewhere or some book that they found in Sainsbury's, mm-hmm. or they are coming into these conversations um, with with this socioeconomic status that is that is going to have a big impact on the their ability to um, to understand or recognize or even implement the stuff that you might might uh, suggest for them all of these things need to be acknowledged and recognized and right. thought about in every interaction. Right. Um, so that's the, re- I mean, I think we, we kind of said was that was the purpose, the purpose season of one, the season one, but yeah. that's how we're going to end it yeah. in our next episode. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll do it a bit of justice. It will, it's not going to be, the, I think yeah, be it's, the not, it's not gonna, it will be the hardest episode. It's not going to be exhaustive. I don't think it can be. No. I mean, if we look at the
1: foresight map, um, you know, that just shows just how complex and, and inter woven all of these issues are but we'll try and focus on some more salient aspects of it that relates to nutrition Hmm. um you know the the example i kind of used earlier which we can go into more detail is that the density of fast food outlets relative to areas of social deprivation like that's 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 not my opinion that's there's again there's published research to support that And so the next episode we very much are going to be focused on the evidence for these issues yeah um you know, and it's rather extensive, mm-hmm. um, and it's kind of depressing. And I think if there is a net effect that comes out of that, I think we just need people to be angry. <laughs> I think food needs to be a political issue. It is politicized, but I think it needs to get to the point where we're now thinking about who we want to lead countries based on how are they going to approach population health. Um, you know, and not this, you know, rampant kind of neoliberalism that we have at the minute. It's just deregulate everything, <laughs> deregulate the healthcare system, <laughs> deregulate taxes, <laughs> let the free market decide. It's like the free market's been deciding and we're in
0: really, really bad health. <laughs> we, yeah, we need to, we, we need, I mean, again, I opinion, like but communist. we need to, we, we need, we need to reduce the inequality, yeah. not increase the inequality. And, and everything that has happened so far over the last 15 years if not longer longer has increased the inequality yeah um so so yeah we'll see what we can do in the next episode yeah um thank you for joining us in this one and uh we will see you in the next one